All right, so if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Philippians 2. To Philippians 2. And so um, I'll start with this. The other day I was talking to one of my buddies. He's a teacher. And he said they had a principle that was great. He was um, one of those, those leaders that um, let you have a lot of autonomy. Like he was a good leader. He let his expectations be known. And then he wanted you to thrive in your gift set. Have you ever had a leader like that? It's nice, isn't it? That they're still with you and for you and they know, you know they're behind you and they give you direction and all those things. But otherwise, they don't micromanage you. They, they say, hey, you go use your gifts and they trust your ideas and they let you go. And from what he said, he was a really beloved principal. Like everybody really loved him and, and trusted him. And because of that, um, he got promoted. I guess you can say promoted. He went from being a principal to a superintendent and he went to a bigger district and became a superintendent. And when he left, he said, just like everybody just celebrated this guy. Everybody loved this guy and talked about how amazing he was and what a great leader he was. And there was a reason that he was moving on to quote unquote bigger and better things. So that's what he wanted to become a superintendent. And that's how that school year ended. But he said, by the time they started the next school year, something had shifted that they'd hired a new principal, and this new principal was a, li- was a little bit different than the old principal. He was much, the reputation of this new principal is he was a little bit more of a micromanager, like really, really, got really, really, really into all the details. And so this, this I don't know, this idea started spreading through the staff that, oh, they brought this principal in to fix all this, the old principal's mistakes. That basically, like, it was almost an implication, like, well, they got rid of the other principal so this new principal could come in and, and clean up the mess. And my buddy was like, like I, I, at first I didn't even know where this came from. He's like, that, that narrative is just not true. That's not how, as far as I know, I don't know anybody that viewed that principle that way. And they definitely didn't bring in a new principle to do anything. He left because he wanted to be a superintendent and got this amazing job in an amazing school district because his reputation is so good. But somehow it got out there amongst the staff and other people were saying they had to bring in this new principle to clean up the mess. Now, how do you think that happened? What do you think? I'll tell you what my buddy thought. He, he thought it probably just started with a few people who were complaining and, and were a, a little bit too critical and were bringing up things that didn't even need to be brought up because he left. And that idea that this principal was doing things that needed to be cleaned up kind of started spreading like a cancer through the rest of the staff. And he's like, not everybody believed that. He's like, I think most people knew that that wasn't true at all, but there's a significant amount of people that were like bought into the narrative and started to believe that. And that, that cancer just kind of spread. And he's like, we needed the school year to start to just kind of get rid of that. And he's like, thankfully, the new principal was like super, super um, complimentary of the old principal. And that kind of died pretty quick. But he said he came back to the school year and just couldn't believe that narrative even existed. Has that ever happened to you? Has anything ever happened like that happened to you in your workplace or in your school or in your family or amongst your friends? I bet for a lot of you that something like that has happened before. Well, again, today, if you haven't been with us, we're walking through the book of Philippians, and we are in Philippians chapter 2. And it's, an, it's a really, all of it's important, but it's been kind of an important chapter for us, because if you remember Paul, the Apostle Paul is in jail in Rome, and he's writing this, we call it a book, but this letter to a church that he started in the city of Philippi. 
And we know very clearly this is a church that he loves dearly. It talks about his joy, the joy that he finds in this church over a dozen times in this letter alone. This is a healthy church. This is a good church. This is a church that is spreading the gospel. And the, and the reason Paul is writing this letter is to share Jesus with them, right? To share his joy with them, but also because they sent him a care package along with a guy, which would have been a long journey just to make sure that Paul was taken care of. This is a healthy church. And even though it's a healthy church, Paul also is addressing an issue here. If you remember in Philippians 4, there's two women who, the implication is they're leaders in the church that are dividing over something. And it's causing hurt and pain in the church. I don't know if people are taking sides or what's happening, right? But it's obviously not the gospel because Paul would address it, it's not the gospel. Other places where it's important doctrine or gospel, Paul tells you exactly what it is. He addresses it directly because he still sees himself as their pastor. He really kind of still is one of their elders. He started the church, but he doesn't bring it up here, which means this is not a gospel issue. This is not a primary issue. This is an issue that Paul is saying, look, help these women to reconcile, help these people to reconcile. And so as we've been walking through Philippians 2, the point of this, this whole chapter has been, you need reconcile because, because look to Christ, who had every reason to have everything against us came down out of heaven, left his glory and his authority, laid those things aside so that he might die on a sinner's cross, so he might die in the shame and humiliation of the cross, so that we might be set free. He set his interests aside for the sake of us so that he could save us and redeem us and forgive us and show grace, us grace and mercy so that we might know him more. And so in that, Paul in Philippians 2 is saying, look, like, listen, look into the example of Christ and know that that divine humility of Jesus is in you. The Holy Spirit is in you. So this is capable. Look to others' interests before you look to your own. Look to other people. Humble yourselves and look to others before you look to yourselves. Walk out of the selfishness and the self-ambition and the rivalry and the conceit and look to others first. And then last week when TJ preached, it, it started to kind of work that out practically. And the first kind of practical way that started to work out is that Paul said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Meaning we know that we have our salvation. Like that's guaranteed forever, but it's just already not yet. We have been saved, but we'll also be saved on that day. And until that day when we were fully redeemed, we're, we're working towards becoming more and more like Christ so that we are out, outworking of our salvation, knowing what Jesus Christ is. We become more and more like him and we walk more and more in the blamelessness and the purity, practical blamelessness and purity of Jesus Christ. Work it out. Keep working out the fact that you've been saved and that you are being saved and conform to the image of Christ. Well, today we're going to kind of get to the first real practical outworking of Christ's example and what it means to work out your salvation with fear and trembling in verse 14. And what I'm hoping today is that you'll see there are certain traps that God wants us to avoid, but not just for the sake of our church, but because if we can avoid these traps and we can walk in the goodness of Christ, it's going to be beneficial not just to our church, but to the world. So why don't you pull up Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 14 through the first half of 16. First half of 16, but let's just read verse 14 to start. Chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's pretty clear, huh? The first outworking of this humility and the working out of our salvation is do all things without grumbling or or disputing. So, um, how many things are we to complain about or grumble about? 
You could, you could look at it two ways. Do all things without or do none of these things ever. Do all things without grumbling. Is that like just immediately convicting for anyone, anyone in the room? Do all things. Another word again for that is, the Greek word is complaining. I, I, I've said this before, but I think sometimes we just wish, man, I wish God would just tell me what he wants. I wish, you know, like I see all this theology and, and the Bible and sometimes it's hard to understand. I wish God would just tell me what his will is. Well, you want to know what God's will is? This one's clear, right? We don't, we don't have to wonder on this point what God's will is. Do all things without grumbling, without complaining. I could argue that this applies to everywhere in your life. But if you remember the context of this letter that from Paul, who wrote this by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is that he's talking to the church. He's talking to people just like you and me. He's talking directly to people in this church that are grumbling and complaining about their church family. About maybe about the sides, maybe about their leaders, maybe about how someone wronged them. I don't know what the context is, but Paul knows. So a member from their church came up and delivered him a care package. He got to hear it personally. He knows what's going on in this church. He's saying, do all things without grumbling and complaining. And like I said before, is there anyone in this room that this is not just at least a little bit convicting for? A little bit convicting. Because how often do we complain about others or grumble about their decisions or get frustrated or even angry when, when someone in our church family does something that we don't like or that we don't understand or that we don't agree with or they said something that we misunderstood and like it just keeps going and going. Um, how often, let me ask you, how often do you grumble versus when something comes up that like's a little bit frustrating for you? Because we get frustrated. It's okay. If something can happen or someone can say something or a decision get made that you don't fully understand and it's a little bit frustrating, but, but how often do you grumble or complain or talk to others about how, how I, well, I would, you don't, you don't, do you know what this person did or do you know what they said or do you know what decision got made? How often do you grumble or complain versus going to someone and understanding and love, giving them the benefit of the doubt and just asking? I think a lot of times even in those situations, we really go to tell people how wrong they are instead of going to seeking, man, maybe I missed something. Let me go try to seek to understand what's going on here exactly. Let me go try to ask questions so I know what's going on and find out and work through it together. Because here's the, here's the thing, the scripture constantly, over and over talks about like, as Christ brought us peace, we're to be people of peace. Are you a person of peace? Do you bring peace? Now, I want to be realistic. I'm not hammering us all today. Like In a lot of ways, church, I think we do pretty well at this, and we're growing at this, and a lot of you take this really seriously, and praise God for that. This is not me bringing this up today because we need to be hammered with this, right? Like, I'm bringing this up because this is where we are in Philippians 2, right? But even in this healthy church, Paul is telling a healthy church, hey, look how serious this is. You need to take this seriously, because even in a healthy church, this, this kind of stuff can start to take over, and the cancer can start to spread, can't it? It just has to start with a few people grumbling, a few people complaining about things that they don't even fully understand, probably, and then all of a sudden that starts to spread to other people. No, I want to be real, realistic on this. This is not common condemnation, but the truth is we all fall short on this one at times, don't we? All of us. I've fallen short on this. You will fall short on this. This is why we need to take this, just the more reason to take this very, very seriously, because if this can happen in a healthy church, this can happen in any church, and if we're not extremely mindful and care, careful, it will happen in our church. 
Because God has already told us in Philippians 2, 3, we're to do nothing from selfish ambition, nothing from rivalry or envy or conceit or pride or even out of insecurity or because we think our way is best. This is so important. Paul is basically saying the same thing again. He's reiterating basically the same point in different language. And when the Bible does that, you better pay attention. When the Bible repeats itself this quickly, we got to pay attention to it. I believe Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God is making this point. But I think Paul's making this point because he knows this is the kind of thing that takes down even healthy churches. It takes down even healthy churches. Just like with my teacher friend, right? In his school. A few grumblers, a few complainers that are kind of bold with what they have to say, which are pretty vocal, all this, and that, that don't have the courage or the strength or the humility or the character to just try and go work through it with someone and have a conversation. Start to spread cancer through the school or the body and that negativity spreads to so many more people than it should. It's the cancer of a church. Now, does the fact that we are, let's say this again, feel, feel the weight of this, think about it, never to complain or grumble. Like that, what? <laughs> never. Doesn't mean we don't get frustrated and talk about it with someone trying to work through it so we can have a clear mind, right? Doesn't mean that I don't talk to, talk to my wife when I'm struggling with someone I'm frustrated about, I'm trying to work through, I'm trying to understand, and she's like, okay, calm down. Like, listen, I don't think I've walked over into sin at that point, right? I need someone to help me speak truth of the gospel into my life, right? But that's different of like, I'm having a moment, I need someone to help me walk through this so I can have, have a clear mind, as just kind of complaining over and over, right? Never grumble and complain. Now, the fact that it says that, does that mean that we should just keep all of our frustrations, our questions, our concerns to ourselves? I think the second part of verse 14 helps us answer the question of if we're just basically supposed to keep our mouths shut. Look at chapter 2 again. I'm going to start at the beginning of verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That word Disputing is a part and word. It, it, it also, in some of your translations, might say, do all things without questioning. Now, that sounds like a bold statement, like don't question anything. It kind of sounds like that if, if you're just translated as questioning. Um, that's, it doesn't mean that you never bring anything up. You never, you never challenge anyone. You never challenge your leaders. Here, here's the context of this Greek word for disputing or questioning. In Romans 14.1, this is translated as quarreling over opinions that we shouldn't argue, that we shouldn't quarrel over opinions. It doesn't say the gospel. It says opinions. 1 Timothy 2.8 says the same thing. That it, the word, Greek word used here is quarreling. In Matthew 15.19, ironically, it's translated as evil thoughts. So the word can be translated as thoughts too, but it's how we think or how we communicate what we feel and think. And in, in Matthew, it's called evil. Evil thoughts, Quarreling. So that's what this is. You see what it's getting at? This is not about you keeping your mouth shut, right? This is not about you bringing up your good ideas or never sharing a difference of, of opinion or never sharing a different like vision of how you think things should go or how they could go. This is, this is not, not avoiding sin by keeping your mouth shut so that you can keep the peace. No, this is, this is pointing towards an argumentative heart born out of a critical spirit that doesn't give people the benefit of the doubt long enough for, the, for you to go talk to them so that you might get clarity and understanding as you show them compassion and love. 
And sometimes that compassion and love is telling them exactly where their sin is or where you think they're wrong. But you can do that in a loving way, can't you? We can do that in a loving way. Let me give you an example of how this can work well. Um, recently, oh, three weeks ago, had a finance meeting. I already told Maggie and Maria I was going to talk about them today, right? But we had a finance meeting with me and Larry. And um, we asked Maggie and Maria if they want to be involved because Maria's not currently an accountant, but she's got an accountant background. And then Maggie's superstar accountant like that. She's been doing that for how long? only 20 years doing accounting, and their lives have gotten to a point where they can help out with this kind of thing. So we sat down in this meeting, and you know what I loved what happened in this meeting? We kind of shared a few things, and then they just started asking questions, right? Now, I, I know almost immediately when things were in the church, they could immediately say, well, why don't we do this, and why don't we do this, and why? No, they asked a bunch of questions to see where things are and to understand why we did what we did and why we didn't do what we did, and then, and then they started asking questions like, well, why don't we do things like this? And Larry and, I, and Larry and I were like, well, I don't know. That sounds like a really good idea. I didn't know we should do things like that. I'm like, we're not, fine. We're not accountants, right? Our minds don't work that way. Larry's works that way more than mine does. But the details and numbers, uh-uh, right? And so then they start asking like, well, well, why don't we do this? I'm like, that sounds like a great idea. Why don't we do that? And then immediately they had like, like no, listen, they, they were using critical thought, right? There's nothing wrong with having critical thought. They were seeing what they're good at critically and thinking immediately seeing all these all these ways that we can improve, ways that Larry and I didn't even know we could improve or didn't know what to do because that's not how our minds work. But they shared lots of good ideas, had lots of different opinions, said we should, hey, maybe we should stop doing this and start doing that. And it was a fantastic meeting. Did they keep their mouth shut? No, they had tons of opinions, tons of thoughts, but it was them using the gifts that God gave them to help us all grow and be better. This is what we're talking about. Because how easy would it be for someone who has expertise there, is gifted there, or just sees things differently to come in and be like, why aren't you doing this, this, and this? You've been doing that all this time. Why? Or standing back and, and like kind of looking at it from a distance and then being like, are you serious? That's what we're doing right now? They're not even doing this program or using this thing? Like, is that not how we operate probably at least half the time as human beings? I don't mean just in this church. Again, I think our church is growing and pretty healthy in this. But is that not what we do? We don't need to stand back and complain. Instead of like coming and engaging, seeking to understand, come and ask questions. Try to learn a person's perspective and where they're coming from. Because I'm telling you what, when there's been any kind of issues in our church, not every time, 90% of the time in 15 minutes, issues and frustrations are solved when people come and seek to understand. And it usually always ends with, oh, that's what you meant? That's what you said? That's how you felt? Well, I felt this. Oh, you did? I'm so, so, no, I didn't mean that at all. I'm so sorry that you felt that way. Me too, I didn't know. Done. 90% of the time, that's what we have. Maybe it takes a little longer than 15 minutes. Maybe it doesn't. I had one that was solved in like, I don't know, 17 seconds the other day. Why are we doing this? Oh, we're, we're not. What are we doing? This. Oh, because of this, this, and this? Oh yeah, that, that's exactly why. Oh, good done, <laughs> over. But we hold those things in. And some of you, I love you, but you use the fact that you're introverted or, or hate confrontation as an excuse to stand back. Now, I, listen, I know it's easier for me than most people, but it's not because I'm naturally confrontational. I mean, I am I'm more than a lot of people, but it's because I see the benefit of going and giving people the benefit of the doubt and going talking to them, seeking to understand, 
hearing their thoughts, hearing their heart, hearing their mind, understanding where they're coming from, and then it's usually pretty easy to reconcile from that point or to grow together. Because in the end, usually we both walk away better, and usually, usually we walk away as closer friends than we were before because we understand each other more, and that's a beautiful thing. And that's a beautiful thing. No, the more that we're all using our gifts and expertise, the, the more that we're all using our good ideas, the stronger, the more whole our church family will be so that our love for God and our love for each other will grow more and more. This is what I think Paul is warning us against because it will destroy our potential. It'll destroy our love if cancer like this starts to take, to take over. Praise God we have a church where a lot of you practice this consistently. Praise God. But I think we can grow a whole lot more because we haven't made it to uh, the goodness of Jesus Christ yet, so I know we can all grow a whole lot more. But it's also more than just having a healthy church that honors God. Open your Bibles back up to chapter 2. And uh, I'm going to start in verse 14 again, but we're going to read through the first half of verse 15 now. Philippians 2, starting verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Let's stop there for a second. Church, all of this, like all of chapter 2, has kind of been building on itself, kind of coming to a point. It's talking about that, that by living in the humility of Christ that is in us, by, by following the example that he left, left for us, by working out our salvation with fear and trembling, by, by consistently not giving in to the, to the temptation and the sin to complain and grumble and be argumentative. But if we are helpful, we, we are empowered, we are capable of living lives and having a family that matters. Now, what does it mean to have a family that matters? Let's start with this. It says that if we stay humble, we don't grumble we may be blameless and innocent. Now, normally in the New Testament, when it talks about how we're blameless and innocent or pure or, or holy, it's referring to our relationship to God the Father through Jesus Christ, right? If we are believers in Christ, the Father looks at us and he doesn't see our guilt, he doesn't see our sin, he sees the blamelessness, the purity, the holiness, the set-apartness of Jesus Christ, right? That's what it's almost always referring to, but it's not here. It kind of is because it calls us children of God. And as children of God, that's who we are, right? So it's referring to who we are. Our identity is that. But in the context, the, the blamelessness and, and the innocence and the purity it's talking about is our relationship to each other. That we're to walk in blamelessness, purity, innocence among each other. By being humble, by not grumbling, by not complaining, we can be not only practically, but also perceived as, which is going to be important in a second, perceived as blameless and innocent, right? Without blemish, not just before God, but before each other and before the world, before the world. Now, uh, just for clarity, this is not talking about perfection, right? None of us have achieved perfection yet. We'll get that on the other side of glory. It's talking about being set apart from the world. If you remember what holiness really, uh, there's multiple definitions for holy, but one would be set apart, in, really set apart in purity, set apart from the world in purity. Because we all know this, the world around us, as it says here, is twisted. 
It, it is crooked. I, I wrote down some things, but I, I, don't, I don't even have to walk through all the ways that today um, God's world and God's commands are, are twisted, how his creation is twisted and crooked, even how our identity and who God says that we are like his, as his image bearers, how all of these things get twisted and they're crooked and so people can chase their own desires, be their own God, believe their own truths. Do I have to walk through all the ways? And just in our culture, those things are happening right now. We see them all the time. We are bombarded every single day with all of these things. And we, listen, we, have, we consistently have to have our minds transformed by the word of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit if we're gonna be rooted in the truth. It's why I'm constantly talking to you guys about passages like Romans 12 too. It comes all, up all the time. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. All of the time, have our minds renewed by the truth so that we can walk in the truth of who God is, who he says he is, who he says we are in his promises and in his commands. But here's what this is really saying. Because you are the children of God, because you have the spirit of Christ in you, humbly love each other in such a way that the lost in the world can't help but see it. They can't help but notice it. That the distinction in how we treat each other in the church is at such odds with the culture that our holiness, our set-apartness is virtually impossible to ignore. And that doesn't mean that we're just always really nice to each other. Can can people in culture be nice to each other? Be inclusive to each other? Yeah, and so a lot of it is being kind and gentle and patient with each other. But it's also in how we deal when when somebody does mess up. Listen, listen, somebody, just like somebody in your family, somebody in this room is eventually going to mess up. They're going to say something. They're going to do something. They're going to plan something that you don't like, and it may even be sinful because they're like you and they're like me. And so the way we distinguish ourselves is not just by being nice, but even when the other person messes up, like actually messes up, we give them the benefit of the doubt. We go and seek to understand. And then if necessary, we address their sin with them in kindness and love and gentleness and patience and courage, and boldness so that they might see it, repent of it, and grow in Jesus Christ as we do too. Because how often have I shared the truth of Jesus Christ with someone who was struggling with someone, but it was a truth that I needed to hear in that moment as it was coming out of my mouth, or as someone has done the same for me. That is our set-apartness. How we handle conflict and unity should look different. Because this, this, this also would play out in our everyday lives. This will play out at our jobs. This will play out with our families and at ball games and anywhere else where our lives interact with others. But the context here, it does play out out there, but the context is here is that it must start in the church. It must, not should be, can be, must be the case in our churches. And why? Look at the second part of verse 15 and the first, first part of verse 16. Verse 2 Verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. We strive for this. 
We pray for this kind of unity. We seek to love and we seek to sacrifice and we seek to reconcile and and we fight for each other. Why? Well, the number one reason we're going to see in a passage I'm about to read, but the reason we saw in chapter 2, verse 11, the the number one reason we do this is for the glory of God, right? So that we might radiate who God is, how good he is, his grace and his mercy and point people to Jesus Christ. That's the number one reason. The secondary reason is so that we might live in love in this way so that we might shine so that we might radiate hope amongst a lost world, the hope that comes in Jesus Christ. And that can sound like a cheesy Christian saying, right? Like, be a light. It's not cheesy, it's the truth. You know, there's a couple different Old Testament passages that Paul could have been kind of quoting here or using here, but I just can't imagine that the words of Christ are not in the back of Paul's mind when he said this. In Matthew 5, 14 through 16, Matthew 5, 14 through 16, Jesus said this, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to give glory to the Father who is in heaven, right? This is all about the glory of God. We rated about this for the glory of God, but so that they might see the glory of God. I don't know if you remember, I shared, I shared this a few years ago, but when I went to Israel, we got in at night and we were driving up to the Sea of Galilee and um, I knew that, I knew, but I was kind of just astounded and I was trying to see things, but we couldn't really see things. And I remember we kind of came around this corner and then off in the distance, do you know what I saw? A city on a hill. And it was way off in the distance, but you could see it from ever. There's a city on this gigantic hill and it was just lit up all the way across with lights, right? And we saw it from miles and miles and miles away. As we got closer, you just couldn't help kind of look at it and be in awe because it was darkness and then this bright city on a hill. And the next day when I was standing on the Sea of Galilee looking over at this city, I realized Jesus was probably pointing to that city on a hill that you couldn't help but take notice of. Like in all the area saw its light shining on top of this hill because you couldn't avoid it. That's who we're supposed to be, church. We're supposed to be a city on a hill, shining our light to all. Not doing things out of selfishness, not being envious, not always thinking our way is best, not complaining, not argumentative, not overly critical on matters. In humility, counting others more significant than ourselves. Not just looking to our own interests, but striving, church, striving to be blameless and pure in regards to those in our church family made possible, only made possible by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, the Spirit of Christ who did the same for us. All of it matters. Why? So that the light of God's glory in us, so that the love of God in us, and so that our love for Christ and for others in Christ might be a beacon of hope to a world who's looking for their hope in hollow things and things that can never truly give them hope. And also so that by loving each other, people might come to know God and be saved. As John 13 says, I give you a new commandment to love one another. And that the whole world will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. How you love one another. Do you think we could take that any more seriously? Do you think there's any command that we could take more seriously than this one? That that in the humility of Christ, he's shown us how we love this way, how we pursue it this way, and to know that that's in us? 
I love that right after that, Paul wrote, again, because God inspired him to write it, but right after that in verse 16, it's not only a bridge into our passage next week and a thought that Paul's going to have next week, but it's the truth that we need to hold on to. It's so vital for us, something that we need to consistently be reminded of. To be this loving family, to be a city on a hill, we have to hold on to the word of life. Let me say a very pastor thing. The word of life means kind of, has kind of a double meaning. So the word of life means the word of God. The Holy Spirit speaks to us primarily through the word of God, through the truth that, that's here, because our hearts lie to us. So through the word and through the word, talking to God and seeking God, we need to be in the word. Like, listen to this, listen, you need to be in the word worshiping God, not checking the box, not reading it like a textbook, but seeing God's character, who he is, what it means to worship him, to follow him, to see who he says he is, who he says you are, what he's promising you, what he's commanding you, and worshiping him because, he, him, because he's so good. Not trying to break down Philippians 2 like it's a textbook, but looking at what Christ did and just being astounded at what he was willing to give up and go through for you. Worship. And through that worship, our hearts will be stirred to follow God's commands, to walk in purity and blamelessness in the world. But right here, we need the word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us. Because the word of God is holy and active and sharper than two-edged sword. It'll cut right to your heart. Right to your heart. But the reality of the word of life is not just a book, but it's a person. Jesus is the word of life. He is the one that came and showed us who God is and spoke the words, literally spoke the words of God. And so we constantly need to remember who Jesus is, what he has done, and how he has brought us from death to life so that we are no longer people of the flesh, but we are people who are of his spirit, of the Holy Spirit, capable of all of these things because of his unbelievable goodness, grace, and mercy. He is the truth. We are capable of his great power and his divine humility because he is in us. Let the word of God and the word of God remind you of this every day. As we say all the time, this is why we do not graduate from the gospel. Because we need to be reminded of how it permeates every aspect of our lives all of the time, every day. Church, do you feel like this is possible for you? To, to love this way? To walk in this church family this way? to engage with your brothers and sisters in Christ in this way. Does it feel possible? Because in Jesus Christ, it absolutely is. He does not lie to you. The word of God does not lie to you. Introverted or not, super non-confrontational or not, you can do this. And so I just want, as I've been saying a lot lately, repentance is a gift from God. It's his gift so that we can see our sin and our weakness and come to the one who is strength and who is forgiveness so that we might let go of that sin and turn to God and walk in the hope and the joy of following Jesus Christ. Thank God for repentance. He just doesn't say, what are you doing? And stomp on us. He says, no, come. I see that sin. Confess it to me. It's already forgiven. Confess it to me. Turn away from it and I will make you whole. That's what repentance is. So my question for you today is, where is the conviction on this one? Where do you need to repent? Where do you need to confess? 
either to God, yes and amen, first and foremost to God, but maybe to someone else where you've held something in your heart with a fellow church member, with a, someone in your life group, with someone here, one of your leaders, where, where do you need to repent and, and reconcile, confess your hard-heartedness, your critical spirit, where you've been argumentative, where you've complained, where you've grumbled? I don't think this is something that we just kind of say, yeah, I need to do better. Do you see how serious the Bible takes this? This is something where you need to probably, some of us need to sit down with some people and be like, I need to apologize to them. I need to confess to them. And I need to, like, maybe God will use that to grow us together and make, make a closer friendship. Where do you need to repent, reconcile, forgive? Where do you need to forgive someone who's actually sinned against you? And go reconcile that. Like, not saying, well, they should come to me. Is that what Christ did? No, Christ came to us. Like, we, we did everything wrong. He did nothing wrong, but he came to us in humility because he loves us. Who do you need to go to who has wronged you? But you want to follow the pattern of Christ because you love him and you see what he has done and say, I, yes, they hurt me. Yes, they sinned against me, but I love them. So I need to go and reconcile with them. I need to go share my hurt, but I also need to seek out understanding with them so that we might heal that. Where do you need to change so that you might fully shine the light of God's glory? in our church, but through our love so it might radiate to a lost world. Church, this isn't easy. Believe me, I, I understand that. I recognize that this is not easy, but we are not people who shrink back from hard things. Because by doing the hard thing, we're going to find Jesus Christ, and we're going to remember what he's done for us and what he's given to us. And here's what I think. I believe all of us know. I think we know even without being Christians, but I think specifically because you have the Holy Spirit in you, you know that if you and I, all of us, could love like this and humble ourselves like this and reconcile like this, that everything in this church and in this family would be better. And that your life in this church family and beyond would absolutely have more joy if you let go of a critical heart and frustration and anger and sin you would find the joy of Jesus Christ amongst your family we all know it don't we it's just hard I think most of us believe this way is better it's just hard well we do the hard thing for a moment so we might have more joy long term it's the condition of the human Spirit, isn't it? Sacrificing the hard thing now for long-term pain. Well, let's do the hard thing now if we need to for the sake of long-term health and joy in Christ. Because church, God gave us each other on purpose so that we might grow and thrive and know his love more and more and so that we might be a city on a hill so that we might see people saved through the way that we love each other. So let's take it seriously and trust in Christ. Amen. Let's pray with me.